We even got a bonus Ollie Wainwright toilet cameo. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is episode 49 and we are... The team, with the exception of Tash, are at the in situ 2024 conference. And we're joined today for episode 49 with Kai Uwe Bergman of BIG Architects. Welcome to New Zealand, welcome to in situ, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for making time um, with us today. To begin, can I ask you to please introduce yourself? Well, kia ora. Thank you. Uh, Kai Uwe Bergman. Uh, I'm a partner at uh, BIG, B-I-G, Bjork Engels Group. I live in New York, uh, but uh, BIG is actually a global uh, design office with now uh, 750 architects uh, between eight different offices. You're described as, um, as leading the urban and um, landscape component of, of BIG. Um, it seems that your work, all of the work, tends to engage with the landscape anyway. You know, you're making landscape out of buildings and places and times. So how do you draw that distinction? What's your focus within the company? Um, great start off. Uh, so thank you uh, for the, the chance to actually dive a little deeper, perhaps, into some of the topics I'll cover uh, during the talk here at Institute. Um, the, it, it's very true that um, we don't like so much to define uh, the different, say, practices of architecture, landscape architecture, what's in, what's out. And so a lot of the schemes and, and projects and the way that we work is actually blending and providing a kind of a holistic approach to, um, to how to think about uh, design. And that had, at a very early stage, when you track sort of Bjorke's uh, career arc uh, from when he started apprenticing at OMA to when he founded uh, Plot and thereafter Big, uh, the very earliest projects were already incorporating landscape in really um, kind of meaningful ways. The mountain is this kind of anger or what, uh, you know, uh, descending terraces of, of residences uh, in one of the flattest countries uh, on the planet, Denmark. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, who goes and builds mountains in, in uh, a flat country like Denmark? And that idea of um, thinking about how landscape is integral to the making of uh, a building or a structure or the way that it sits in a city or on the street um, is integral. And um, I have the... Uh, opportunity to work globally and interact with all the offices that we have. Um, I'm very much uh, a little bit the looking for the projects, looking for the ways of working together with local architects, with local uh, design teams. And then I've discovered uh, in then what I really enjoy doing is the larger the scale of a project, the more complex of a project, the more people it requires to actually uh, do and approve the process um, is uh, where I uh, really function best. So that's at the urban scale. Okay. You talked a little bit about the structure of the company and the founder, Bjarke. How, where's, that's now 700 people. Yeah. So how, what's that journey been like? Um, I mean, how does it, how does it scale up from 
um, from you know, the founder and the very strong presence that he's had uh, in the uh, in the public realm to something which is the scale it is now. Yeah, so it is a, a fairly large scale for a design office, and I think that um, specifically to Bjarke and what he has done, uh, he's actually created an environment uh, where there's a lot of um, uh, really both reliance but also empowerment of the people around him. And uh, the first time I met Bjarke was at the Venice Biennale in 2004, and already then I could sense that it was never going to be a kind of work-for relationship. Mm. It was really a collaborative space. And very soon he was looking for the very kind of, uh, you know, super skills or whatever I was like really, really into and how that could complement and, and work within the kind of ecosystem that, that became big. And that is now within all of the people that are actually working there that you come in and our interest is in actually empowering you to do your very best. And in return, you get some of the most incredible responsibilities and opportunities that, that kind of feeds one another. It strikes me, um, looking at your work, that it, it feels like it's underpinned by an optimism, um, not only about what a structure can achieve, but about what architecture can do to um, help solve some of the world's challenges. And I wondered if you felt that that optimism is a characteristic of BIG. Absolutely. And if you look at actually the, the first exhibition and the first catalog that we put together was called Yes Is More. And that was actually a real kind of comment upon the nimbyism, not in my backyard, negativity that pervades in the profession. And also the way the profession is perceived from the outside world or you know, the, the general public is, is one of, you know, that's, I don't want that in my backyard. And the, the, the idea of yes is more is how can you actually create projects and thereby narratives uh, that actually add something, create a higher quality of life that people now that are NIMBYs become YIMBYs and say, that's what I'd like to have. And Copenhill is a great example. No one wants to live next to a power plant. And yet when you put a ski slope on top and you can climb it and you can drink uh, you know, some beers and take the most incredible views of mm. all the entire city, suddenly families want to actually move there. It's now like a, it's what the, the, you know, the real estate brokers in that area, they say you're living right next to the, to the Copenhill power plant. So it's now an attribute and an amenity to the city and uh, a, a tourist attraction. So I think that's always been a desire is to sort of find ways to take things and, and ask questions or to kind of flip the, the narrative of how they are perceived. That idea of um, optimism is something we, we often talk about, you know, how, just how optimistic an act architecture is. Um, and that concept you touch on that you sort of, you know, you might, um, you know, you make your arguments, you go through those processes, all the things that's required to bring a major project to life in the hope that once it's actually built, it yields all those benefits you think that turns the NIMBYs to the YIMBYs, it catalyzes the next kind of project. Um, 
now you're able, presumably, to command you know, a huge number of projects of that kind of scale and ambition. Was it always like that? And what's that progression been to get to that position? Yeah, it's, a, it's again, a strange profession because you're never actually in a moment or in a space of just uh, acceptance. It is a continual, whether it's now a new typology that you're entering, have you done a school before? Well, not, not really. Well, then, I don't know if you can do or, or design a school. Uh, or if it's, you know, a new region, you know, do you know anything about this region? I'm not sure you could. So you're, you're constantly mm. actually in a, a, a way of uh, proving to yourself and, and to everyone that is internal, but also then having to communicate uh, that approach and, and the ideas to, uh, to outsiders. Um, and I think that, again, the, the yes is more is a way of inclusivity and that the more people you allow into the process and the more that you don't design for, but that you curate with uh, a community, that is another powerful kind of uh, design process. You s and a lot of things that you talk about um, you talk about this, you don't sort of see boundaries. It's a, a very sort of outreaching practice. It's uh, encompassing and, uh, and um, you know, there are no, you, know, you talk about the difference between buildings and, and landscape being blurred. Um, yeah, it, it seems like a very uh, inclusive place um, and highly collaborative. Is that fair? I think that's right. Yeah, I think uh, that's hopefully the impression that anyone that works uh, both at Big but also with Big has a feeling um, that it is highly collaborative, and um, you know the the ideas are very iterative. And what is is good about iteration and kind of you know getting to the to a solution or towards a a kind of uh, design kind of uh, conclusion is that the, the, the voices that come in, and again, you have to curate that process, uh, and you, you are able to then sort of create certain priorities, priorities and prioritization, and that I think is in a way um, the art of design. Uh, whether it's a political system and a policy where you have to convince 100 people sitting around a table that this is the right approach. Like our Big U project in, in Manhattan, it's of such a scale, 10 miles of coastline in New York. You have to engage with so many different perspectives and, uh, or whether it is something that's uh, actually quite small and meaningful to um, a specific place. Um, you have to allow that collaborative spirit to, to, to really exist. That, um, that theme that Matt kind of asked about and you've touched on a number of times in your responses about um, you know, the building of consensus, but communication and design communication. So even if we stand aside from the work and its outcome, one of the distinctive factors about BIG is the, to me, the strength and simplicity of the design communication. In your process, how much time or how do you talk about not just the design decisions, but then the way you will 
present and communicate them such that they get that, you know, get things over the line, yeah. get that consensus? How, how big a part of your process is that? Well, it's, it, you know, there are, of course, always some critics and people who say that uh, by the way that we communicate, sometimes through di diagrams, uh, it is overly simplistic or it is diagrammatic as, a, as an approach. Um, I think we see that otherwise in that um, we're trying to take extremely complex uh, situations and extremely uh, loads of information and we're trying to communicate it so that everyone actually can be engaged, informed and can help uh, provide uh, you know, their, their opinions. So that, that, that strategy is not just to maximize its explanatory power, it's to also build buy-in, co-design, whatever you want to Absolutely. call it. You yeah. called it something like stewarding or curating with. Yes. It's doing both of those things. Exactly. And, and again, when you're uh, speaking about the, the, the flood protection around New York, mm. you're trying to make a decision on whether you're uh, making something that's for a 50-year flood, a 100-year flood, or a 500-year flood, and then you have to actually explain the exponential cost that those different time factors, you know, uh, mean. And so you, you're, you're bringing everybody in, whether it's the insurers or whether it's the city officials or the people who reside in those flood areas, and you're trying to take the, the, the kind of, uh, the, you know, you're trying to find the root of what it is that you're, that you're doing. And we, we oscillated between 150 year but then, of course, it takes 10 to 15 years to just build. And, and the 100-year so, floods are becoming 10-year floods they, they while are. that's happening. So, uh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the modeling is changing as you're designing. And so then you, know, you, you explain the cost of 100-year uh, versus a 50-year. And it's you know, perhaps like uh, five times. Mm. But it doesn't make sense because it's only twice longer. But it's just that that is what you know what you have to factor in. I think where where architects have a certain uh, skill, it's in visualizing the future, mm. and uh, by by making that accessible, by bringing it into uh, means of of uh, communication that everyone can understand. That's one of the most important uh, yeah. jobs. Yeah, I love that. We, we talk about this, like a series the Architecture Review did where architects wrote to their younger selves. And I can't remember who it was, but it was a great quote that the most successful architects who are, the, are those who can um, most convince people of their vision of the future. Yeah. You know, and that's what you, you know, we're, we're all making something out of nothing, something that doesn't exist yet, something that hasn't been prototyped. Um, when you're talking about the projects of scale and complexity you're talking about, it, it must be understandable by a huge audience, I guess. It's you know, very different to um, to uh, designing um, something which has got a very small and simple audience. So, um, yeah, that, that, that diagrammatic nature and the strength of being able to be describable to um, people is you know, obviously hugely strong in the, in the work that you do. Yeah, um, scale does have a, a part to play, um, although I think that, um, you know, whether you're doing a single-family home, everyone that lives around that home is interested in what you're about to do. And uh, one of the, I, I like this, in Switzerland, they require you to build a frame 
of the house that you're proposing so that your your neighbors can comment upon the peaks and oh, like uh, an outline, an outline, so that you a can, wireframe, yeah, right. out of out of timber and out of wood. That is part of the approval process. And I've always thought that that you know the, how ingenious because neighbors will, you know, they will see. Oh, this house is not going to mm. you know, take the view away, or and and whereas they were actually so against anything happening. And it was just like find the ways in which to um, you know build bridges or in which to uh, provide clarity of purpose, and that's what we continually try to find ways to uh, to do. We talked about optimism, and you've also talked about the Manhattan um, Climate Mitigation Project, yeah. And what I'm sure has felt like at times, but also could be described as a logjam of consultation. So I wondered how, in the unique position you're in, you feel about architecture's ability and society's ability to mitigate the effects of, of climate change, um, having been through part of that project. Yeah, so it, it started under one administration, the Michael Bloomberg uh, mayoral. It then transitioned into the de Blasio mayoral. Uh, now it's in the Eric Adams, and it may actually go through another one or two mayors before it's fully complete. So you're, you're, you've got to create a vision that five different administrations mm. will actually accept and, and uh, consider theirs. And I think that that political time in these larger scale projects, I'm sure it's the same here in Auckland, that is one of the hardest things to, to straddle. Um, and, and again, I think that that is where you, one becomes inclusive, one creates an adaptable plan. So it's, it's a, a framework that can take on. So when de Blasio came along, it was all about affordable housing. And of course, we're, we're providing protection against the elements, but we're also protecting the very, you know, affordable housing that would otherwise be flooded out and would probably be deemed uh, uninhabitable. So you, you have to reframe um, the, the same project in, in many different ways. Um, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's one of the, that, that, that again is we're in a profession that does work at different timescales. And when you enter the political timescale or even the glacial timescale, you, you have to work uh, with that. And, I think the Maori uh, tradition or no way of thinking is a much longer term mm. than you know quarterly results or mm. or uh, you know uh, uh, mayoral uh, kind of uh, terms or, or yeah. political terms. Yeah, it's a real indication of how the, the practice, by how the practice of architecture is, is changing. I guess so you rewind to um, you know, fifty years, it was you know, very much about. Uh, the building and just the building, but the, the process of making those buildings happen is um, yeah, we're more and more engaged with that um, yep. with that process. We call that like a systems thinking, the, the systems that underlie, mm. the, whether it's mm. the water uh, system or the energy systems, um, even food distribution, uh, all of those systems are functioning in one way or another and, and then the buildings and the sites and the plots are an outcome of those major decisions. And, um, you know, we, we constantly also think about um, one day, you know, energy might be free uh, because it's abundant in renewable energy and uh, you may not have to 
pay or build power plants to uh, to to create it. And so that to to us is also constantly we're trying to sort of what would the city uh, or the habitat uh, structure be if one you know had no no if energy grids were no longer the the key way to organize. You've reminded me of a of a piece of work you've done, which was the master planet uh, yeah. piece, and I saw that and thought, well, of course, you need an architect to solve all this stuff, and you just took, you know, in it's exactly that system thinking and that um, thinking about the planet as a whole and think, well, how does this work? How should it work? You know, are we? Um, it's a, a special way of, of looking at, at problems, I think. Yeah, we call it plan for the planet. And it is actually that um, we have now, uh, we're in a moment where uh, we can actually collect data globally. And uh, we're not necessarily sharing that data or designing ourselves to the most efficient use of that data. So we're still driven by national borders or by, you know, city-state thinking. And, um, and yet, if we were to unlock uh, a, 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 a sort of global systems approach, uh, one could actually, you know, uh, where it's the sunniest could empower the, uh, the darkest and where it's windiest could again, it's just the exchange of where these energy sources actually rely um, exist. The, the, you know, the term of systems thinking, um, I don't know if that would also include like legislative systems and all of those sorts of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Like, in a, in a sense, I, I just kind of want to ask you if, are we not, are architects as a whole not just limited in their sphere of influence and legacy to those projects they can do? Should architects not be running for governor, for mayor, for president, <laughs> to, to actually um, change the systems that generate the opportunities and responses to problems and move them from isolated, site-based occurrences to systemic change? But you come to the root, I think, that uh, as a profession, architects are apolitical because they neither want to be too left or too right because they would then eliminate half of their clientele. So this apoliticalness, in order to be as wide of a client, uh, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having access to the widest client base, is, is, is actually perhaps not the right approach. We should be taking certain uh, political or policy level uh, decisions because some just make more sense than others. Um, and you're absolutely right. In, in, in the United States, where I come from, um, you know, Congress is made up of lawyers and doctors. And therefore, you know, most of the laws that are passed are to the benefit of lawyers and doctors, and they subsidize themselves, whether it's the, the health management organization, and the HMO as a business mm -hmm. is incredibly profitable in the United States, or whether it's all of the legal lease that is created and therefore you need more lawyers. Mm. We don't have that same representation from the built environment, whether it's architects or engineers or, you know, we're, we're just a service uh, provider. and that in essence limits us in, in having more impact, uh, both to society and to uh, policies. Are there particular projects of yours that have brought you the greatest degree of 
personal satisfaction, and I wonder if you if you could talk about one of those. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I I think that um, when uh, again at the scale of the city, um, it was uh, sort of in the depths of COVID. Um, one was kind of wondering how would a city like New York rebound, and um, we did a, a kind of pro bono effort of uh, remapping uh, Brooklyn Bridge, which is this 160-year-old uh, glorious bridge in the center of Manhattan, but which had, on opening day, been uh, had 425,000 people moving across it. And today, there are about 160,000 people crossing it. So we've actually devolved as a species. We've not evolved. And, uh, but the reason is that it's now prioritizes uh, uh, car, you know, cars over pedestrians, cars over public transportation. And there's usually just a single person sitting in each of those cars. So uh, before it was light rail, it had a major promenade and, you know, horse and carriages and, and things were moving across it. So to think of remapping it and in a way giving it back as a gift to the city, uh, we modeled how it could actually return back to kind of 300,000 uh, plus. Um, and for us, uh, that's a way of uh, kind of unlocking something that is right there. Um, and it's just that, you know, we don't have or give ourselves the time to think about uh, these things. And, um, and, and then we put that idea out there and the mayor uh, we, we put the bike lanes, we said the bike lanes should be actually taking over some of the car lanes. And so four months after that that uh, proposal went out as an idea, uh, the mayor thought it was a great idea and closed one of the lanes of traffic and is beta testing uh, it as a bicycle path instead. And I, and I think that when you see that actually happening and you, you can't believe that, you know, it could go that quick because the other projects one is working mm. on are like years and you know, decades, it's it's really, really refreshing. We've been trying to put a bike lane in our bridge for... Yeah, we should get you to come, <laughs> and, we should, we should get you to come and talk to our mayor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That'd um, be worth recording. Um, Kai, um, how, do you, how do you keep the creative blade sharp outside work? Um, well, I have uh, two uh, little uh, bambini of uh, ages two and five, and I'd say that's about as creative as uh, <laughs> an engine you probably need outside of work. So just seeing them uh, enter into the world and, uh, and, and learn both language, but also emotions, and, um, and you know, they're, they're also, of course, in a creative uh, environment. So um, that is one. Um, but I've also been uh, reliving a little bit my youth. I, before I uh, became, you know, a practicing architect, I did a fair amount of backpacking, and I spent years on the road and uh, visited uh, many, many different places. And coming back to uh, New Zealand here is a kind of reliving some of that backpacking uh, period and. You know, that's, I think, uh, not a bad sabbatical, maybe, in the future. Uh, when were you originally here? Um, so I, I, I did a, a, a good four months in Australia uh, going around. Uh, my first visit to New Zealand was actually in 2018. 
Um, and uh, I saw uh, Wellington, Taronga, and uh, Auckland. Uh, on this trip, Rotorua, mm -hmm. and I'll be going to uh, uh, one of the islands. Uh, to near... Waiheke, yep. the tour? Exactly. Yep. Great. So um, we'll see a little bit of that. But I'm just reminded, you know, when you're in Rotorua and you see the sort of backpacker hostels and the the fat dog and the fainting goat, uh, <laughs> you, you just you remember uh, a, a time uh, before that, yeah. that was a, a great way to to see a, a country and, 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 and meet its people. Kai, thanks very much for joining us today. I know the 1300 architects in the room are hugely looking forward to hearing you talk um, and enjoy your time in New Zealand. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Kia ora. Thank you so much. Kia ora as well. Thanks.